Welcome to the Paranormal Pendle podcast, coming to you from the heart of Pendle Witch Country in the northwest of England. My name is Craig Bryant, author, investigator, and collector of stories. Join me as we take a journey into the paranormal, UFO sightings, cryptozoology, and big cats. This is the Paranormal Pendle podcast. Welcome to episode 27 of Paranormal Pendle, broadcasting to the Paranormal UK Radio Network at paukradio.com. My guest on this episode is Paul Bestall, who is based in Sheffield in Yorkshire and is the host of the Mysteries and Monsters podcast. Uh, so, first of all, Paul, welcome uh, to my podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on to be a guest. Uh, how are things with you? Well, thank you very much. Everything is very good, and I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for the invitation, Craig. It's nice to speak to you again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we had a we had a great chat on your podcast, so um, I'm hoping that, that we can reciprocate. Um, can we start by, um, I always like to ask, ask my guests, uh, just to tell us a little bit um, about yourself, um, where you're from, how the, the podcast started, um, and anything else that you think is interesting. Yeah, um, I've always had a a, a deep interest in the paranormal primarily because as a child i grew up in a in a haunted house on the the outskirts of the south yorkshire west yorkshire derby uh, uh sorry the south yorkshire border and um it was a converted vicarage craig so it was uh, split into three different houses massive old building and uh, it was a very spooky place so we had sort of the the usual footsteps going down the stairs when nobody else was on the staircase and things like that and found a grave in the front garden when my father was doing some uh, tidying up one day and um, that seemed to be the catalyst for uh, waking something up, shall we say. Right, so um, can you tell us a little bit more then about um, what went on, what what sort of um, haunting there was at the at the house? Yeah, so it, it was a lot of apports really. Things used to appear and disappear You'd hear the bangings, the footsteps were the most common thing. The the strange thing about it, and I've I've yet to come across any other case with a similar kind of situation that used to go on. We used to have an old flush toilet, Craig, as I'm sure you can remember from those faraway days where you had to pull the chain. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, me and my little brother and my mum and dad at that time would be downstairs and the toilet would flush. Right. And you'd be like, Okay, well, there's nobody else here. <laughs> um, and then that would usually be the sort of alarm bell for strange things to start to happen. So things used to drop out the ceiling like pennies and pins and things like that. They were always sort of dropping. You wouldn't see them. You just hear them land. Um, bangings. The dog used to be absolutely terrified of this old larder we used to have at the back of the house. Um, and then you'd just hear these strange things and footsteps and it seemed to have this thing about water, like I say, because it was connected with the toilet. The toilet mm. would always used to flush. And sometimes it would flush really rapidly as well, which in those days, you know, you couldn't get the, the tank to empty unless you physically pulled the chain in those days. So yeah. that was always peculiar. Even when I was six or seven years old, I used to think, well, how's that happening? Mm. Um, but it also used to like fill in the bath up for some reason just to the brim and it always used to fill it up with cold water because it obviously realized we weren't we weren't too well off because my parents were very young 
young parents at that time. So they obviously didn't want to burn our electricity bill by <laughs> boiling all the hot water away, Craig. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that the, the weirdest thing that ever happened, and, I, and it still puzzles me to this day, was that my parents once woke up on a morning to discover that the bedroom carpet had been completely rolled up under their bed. Wow. From one end to the other. So whatever had done it, it'd have to have lifted them up in their bed yeah. to roll the carpet underneath. And they never felt a thing, never never experienced anything, didn't realise anything had happened until they got up and thought, oh, well, hang on. And obviously bare feet on a on the floorboards. And then all of a sudden they realised the carpet had been rolled up. And that was, once again, it's one of those things that often people say, oh, well, it's an old house. You know, you'll hear strange noises and creaks and bangs and things. But yeah, it, and that doesn't cover carpets being rolled up. No, it doesn't. That and actually, I've I've never heard of anything like that before. That's that's to me that sounds like um, poltergeist activity. Yeah, because we never had any. I mean, I don't really remember it, but my mum would always tell me, and she's mentioned it several times as an adult that I would always tell her about the old man that would sit on my bed and talk to me every night. Right. Um, now I don't remember <laughs> okay. much about this apart from saying he was really nice. Right. Um, and he would he would just talk to me about things, and I used to. But she was convinced it was her grandfather because he died when I was two. Right. Okay. So I don't really remember him, um, and that carried on till I was about five or six, and then he stopped coming to visit, and then we moved out when I was seven, towards the end, and then we moved to another house in a in a slight a, a couple of miles away in a different village, mm. and that was that was the end of our sort of family paranormal experiences and and uh, it, it stuck with me ever since so it's it's no surprise i've ended up doing what i do really <laughs> so is, is the is the house still uh, standing is it is it occupied at the minute the, it is have you know uh, it it's now back into two properties one is a it's been completely renovated it's an absolutely beautiful mm. building now one side is a graphic designers i think Okay. And the other side is a is a residential property uh, with a beautiful back garden and lovely mm. flower beds. So I've often been tempted, I have to say, because my mum still lives near where this house was. So whenever I go to visit my mum and I get the train, I have to walk past this house because it was straight across from the church as well. So I grew up with a beautiful view of a graveyard as a child, which is probably why <laughs> I love graveyards as well, Craig. Um, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I've often been tempted to, to knock on the door and ask if anything strange is going on, but nothing seems to be reported, but that's not necessarily, doesn't mean nothing's still happening, really. No. As we as we know, no. people sometimes are very reticent about being honest about such things. Absolutely, yeah. And, and some people are, are not quite as um, uh, sensitive either as well to, to certain things and and perhaps things are going on that, that maybe they don't pick up on it's it's that's that is a really interesting one that that's um the carpet i've never heard anything like that before i mean you, that must have really freaked your parents out well they were very stoical my 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 father was a scientist so I, this is probably why i'm quite a uh, quite a balanced opinion when it comes to all incidents of the strange and the weird craig that i am very i can be very skeptical about certain things in certain cases and things primarily i think because of that and i also have a love of science and space through through my father um but i'm also deeply entrenched in my paranormal beliefs primarily because of my mum and my mum's side of the family because her, her mother was a witch and, and a psychic so it's it's often been a, a a bit of a struggle and it's one of those where you hear these stories where the the dad or the 
the husband will always say, oh, well, it's just this, this and this. He never spoke about it ever. Mm. It was as far as, as far as he was concerned, it didn't happen. <laughs> so when when you say she was a witch was yeah. she was she a practicing wiccan or was it something a little bit more shall we say dark uh no no she well not that i'm aware of certainly <laughs> wasn't they didn't have a cellar so there was no sacrifices going on or anything like that <laughs> um I, I think she was one of those sort of old-fashioned yorkshire old ladies craig where we would consider them to be sort of the wise women of the village or whatever. Yeah. And people would come from far and wide. Um, it's it's quite interesting looking back because she was friends with Doris Stokes, who was obviously one of the most famous psychics in, in Britain and beyond in the yeah. 60s and 70s. Absolutely, yeah. And I didn't know who she was. And it was only when I was about 20, 20, 25. And we were talking about it once with my granddad. Uh, and he was on about Doris Stokes. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about, obviously, because I'd read up and knew exactly who she was and, and seen her on interviews and things. He said, yeah, she used to come around once a month. And I was like, did she? Oh. <laughs> so you, you don't remember these visits then? No. I remember seeing lots of lots of old people, lots of, I mean, it was one of those that uh, people from banks and things, bank managers and mm. counsellors would come and visit her for readings. She used to do tea leaf readings and crystal balls and things like that for them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. <clears throat> that actually, um, I got a mental image um, of my uh, maternal grandmother. Um, she she was probably the the, the sort of uh, uh, Lancashire equivalent, you know, with with the, the with the pinny and the headscarf on, and you know, these very um, very strong willed, very um, yes you know, matriarchal heads of the family, which. Which you know, very very sort of Coronation Street. Uh, <laughs> if people uh, if people know what I mean by Coronation Street, um, you know, long long running British soap opera based in uh, based in the the suburb. Well, not even suburbs really. In in, in Manchester, um, started in the nineteen sixties. Very very strong um, female characters. I mean, they really did sort of rule the roost, didn't they? Yeah, yes. you know that that generation and. And you know that that generation has now sadly passed us by, and I don't think we'll ever see the likes of them again. But that's that's the image that I've got. So yeah, yeah. So so um, so yeah. So that's really where where your interest in in the paranormal came from, then. Yeah, absolutely. And it was one of those things that I was really interested in it until sort of high school, and it just wasn't the thing that people talked about and. In those days, people were more interested in getting girlfriends and going out and sneaking into pubs underage and things like that. And it kind of, I kind of really lost interest in it. And it, it was always there, but it was only sort of, I don't know, maybe about ten years ago. And I really started to reconnect with it and started buying some of the books I used to love as a kid and things like that. And it kind of, I'd lost my way in life and was drifting and I was in a, in a relationship that wasn't really working. So it was. It, it got to a point in my life where my brother had introduced me to podcasts year, about 10 years ago. And one of the first ones he ever introduced me to was, was Howard Hughes's The Unexplained. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that was that was that I was kind of hooked on podcasts as my sort of information and entertainment from that point on. And I still am. And my brother was the catalyst, really. And he kept saying, you know, you know a lot about some of this stuff. And and I'd always kept a deep interest in poltergeists 
especially, Craig. So yeah, which is understandable given what happened <laughs> when, you were a, when you were a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's personal experience that's caused my bias. So it was something that he continually sort of dogged me over for for quite a while. Mm. Um, and then my life situation completely changed, split up, moved out, wasn't very well. Um, and as part of my recovery, I kind of thought, well, you know, it's about time I started to re-embrace everything I loved. Um, and I was I was off work for a bit, recuperating from from a, uh, a, a very troubling mental illness incident. And, um, and I started reading uh, John and Ann Spencer's Encyclopedia for Ghosts, which mm. is a, a wonderful pair of books. If you ever get the chance to get hold of a copy, I recommend them highly. Mm. And um, I came across a case, strangely, from Runcorn that I'd never heard about. And I thought this, it was like a poltergeist case. Yeah. In the 1950s, it was really well reported. It was on the BBC. The local press covered it. Mm. And I got, and it, and it, there was just something about that story, Craig. It, it, it bit me on the backside. And I thought, there's, <laughs> there's hundreds and hundreds of stories like this that nobody seems to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that was sort of April 2018. And, and, the germ of the idea started there. My brother was constantly going, right, you need to do this. You need to do this. And by this point, I'd got to know a couple of podcasters in the, in US, in America and Canada, mm. start speaking with them. A couple of them said, well, if we can help you in any way, give us a, you know, give us a nudge. We'll, we'll start it. So that was, it, it basically took me about 10 months to pluck up the courage, Craig, to take there. I remember, I yeah. bought my microphone in September and recorded my first interview in March. <laughs> <laughs> it was just staring at me for about six months. And my first interview I did, um, it didn't record. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> so uh, so from, from those uh, lowly beginnings, that's where it started. And I just thought, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, yeah. I thought, let's, let's give it a go. Yeah. Let's see what happens. And it starts, you know, I'm a one man show. A lot of podcasters have books or they've been established for quite a while or they've done other shows or they've been on TV. Mm. So I, I basically came from nothing other than knowing a few people. And um, I don't think anybody knows everything about certain subjects, but I certainly knew a fair bit. Mm. And what I've discovered in the four years since is what I thought I knew was very little. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I can. I can definitely um, agree with you that it's it's um, it's a tough thing to start. It, it is a tough thing to start. I mean, I I thought about doing this for a long time, um, and then I only just plucked up the courage myself. Um, you know, sort of eighteen months ago. Um, but I mean, you sort of started quite a while ago. Probably um, there was a lot less podcasting going on. I would have thought when you started. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's not that long ago. It's only my first episode dropped in March 2019. Right. Okay. I'm just uh, I'm just a workaholic. <laughs> you, you, you do have a ridiculous number of episodes out there. I must admit, um, <laughs> when I when I had a look at the episode, you know, the various different episodes that you've done, um, I did have episode envy. I must admit, you know, with the <laughs> with the number of episodes. But I mean, you, you know, all 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 kudos to you, Paul. You know, it's I, you've had some great guests on there, and I I highly recommend that. Um, anybody who lists, is listening to this podcast immediately, you finish listening to this, go and find Paul's um, Mysteries and Monsters podcast because 
uh, you've got some fantastic guests on there so i can't recommend you highly enough um thank you we're gonna have a chat about um some uh let's let's say unexplained phenomena that, that happen in and around um sheffield the area yes. that, that, that you're based in mm. um very famous old city of course sheffield um known as the the steel city yeah um tell us tell us a little bit about sheffield then as a city what's what's it like to live there i've obviously because i wasn't born here i'm i'm i suppose now i've got my my steel city passport correct because i've lived longer in sheffield than i did out out of it so really um i i, I consider myself a sheffielder i i just fell in love with the place i don't know why I moved here at the beginning of the 90s as a 19-year-old pub landlord <laughs> um, okay. in, a, in a very rough and ready old estate <laughs> pub, um, which was, it wasn't the it wasn't as rough as, you know, people that ask you if you got any weapons on you when you came in, and if you said no, they gave you one. They gave you some, yeah, that's the old joke, yeah. Yeah, but you it got was, knives it, on you, no. Yeah, it, <laughs> <laughs> here, take some in with you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was certainly a pub that kept you on your toes. Um, I wore it as a badge of honour that I was the only member of staff that was never physically attacked. Right. Um, and but they were the kind of people they were as 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 rough as old boards. The yeah. you know some of these regulars and the kind of people who who drink copious amounts of alcohol in the days where you had to shut at three o'clock. Yeah. And then they'd top off, go home for a nap, and then they'd come back at seven. So yeah. yeah. You know, and a lot of them were ex steel workers or miners. So they. You know, there was a lot of unemployment at the time if they weren't yeah. working on the on the new tram that was being built or they been working on the student games that had just happened or Meadowall even. Yeah. So there was a lot of poverty and stuff. But I, I just really took to it. And and Sheffield at that time was kind of really exciting and there was a lot of clubs going off and obviously Sheffield's music scene is yeah, of course. on the world over. Um, and so I just, it just, you know, when you go somewhere and you just feel... You feel like you've you've been there your entire life. I just took to Sheffield, and Sheffield took to me. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it's the greenest city uh, in in England. I mean, it's just okay. where, where I live. I live in a little suburb on the south of Sheffield now called Mearsbrook, which is quite a haunted place, as I'll, I'll touch on in a bit. But okay. um, you know, there's a park from my front window. I can see a park on a hill. It's you know, it's loads of little cool little bars where I live. Little I suppose these days they call them micro pubs. Yeah, it's like breweries. Yeah, yeah. There's loads of fabulous restaurants from cuisine from all around the world. So you can go out seven nights a week and have have something from a different continent, from South America to Asia to Turkey to South African cuisine. It's amazing. Um, it's not so good on your waistline, but <laughs> thankfully the Seven Hills here in Sheffield work it off for you. And obviously it's it's a it's a city that prides itself has been a, a cultural hotspot for film. We've obviously got several amazing independent cinemas in the city. The nightlife has begun to resurge. It kind of lost its way about 10 years ago, but it started to really sort of pull itself back. And obviously now we're the real ale capital of Britain as right. well, which is something I never thought had happened. And, you know, we've got breweries galore and loads of rundown oldest industrial areas have been turned into like uh, really trendy quarters where you can go for a, basically sections of Sheffield you can just go there and stay there for a day yeah. out and have a drink and plenty of great food and have a dance or whatever so it's 
it's a city that's got something for everybody. And obviously we're also on the cusp of the Peak District. So it's very popular with climbers, tourists, you know, Robin Hood country. So it's it's a beautiful place and I love it dearly. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's great that a lot of these um, old industrial cities, certainly over the last sort of 10, 15 years, have been regenerated into um into places that you really want to go to i mean i'm quite lucky where i live i'm only um an hour away from manchester on, yeah on the train um and manchester's gone through a, a similar resurgence as well really so um yeah it's uh it sounds like a great place let's start talking spooky then yes shall we? let's uh, let's get into some uh let's get into some ghost stories from sheffield yeah well i think it would be remiss to probably not start with the most famous, I think, ghost story attached to Sheffield. And that is the strange occurrences that occur on the infamous Stocksbridge bypass. Okay. <laughs> I'm all, I, am, I am sat on the edge of my chair with this one, so go on. <laughs> so, the Stocksbridge bypass was built in the mid-80s. Stocksbridge is a old steel town on the out, real on the outskirts of northern Sheffield. It's more towards Barnsley that way out. It's on, yeah. the, on the border. And um, the A616, which was a major A road in the area, which basically ran from, from Nottinghamshire all the way out to, uh, to your neck of the woods that way. Yeah. It, this road was really busy with like trucks and lorries and stuff for, for years. And so the, the government at the time decided they were going to build a bypass to basically cut all this traffic from going through the town and, and push it around. Mm. And so it was just a normal bypass. And then during its construction, there was an incident. And this is where it all starts, where there were, there were two security guards, two chaps called Stephen Brooks and David Goldthorpe who were night watchmen at this site looking after the the the, um, the materials because obviously as i was touching on earlier we just had the minor strike all the steelworks are shut down so there was a lot of concern about stuff getting nicked off the site overnight and people yeah. selling it for scrap or whatever craig yeah. as these things happen and yeah. so they'd obviously in, in, employ some security guards to keep an eye on it and um on this particular evening these security guards were doing the rounds and they began to hear the sound of children singing and laughing. And they were like, well, it's, it's midnight. Why, why, why are there some kids out here playing? And obviously Stocksbridge where they built the bypass, there's a handful of houses. Mm. So the, the chances of a, of a, of a group of children being wandering about is, is next to none anyway. Yeah. Uh, so they went for a, for a drive around to have a look and allegedly because obviously this is one of those stories that, as we were touching on when you joined me on my show, we were talking about the, the story of Pendle Hill and the actual truth. Um, yeah. They allegedly saw some children or the images of children near a pylon, and as they were watching them, they just disappeared wow. into, into the night. Um, but that was probably the least scary thing that happened to them. So the following night... They were doing their rounds again. And at this point, this is when the story takes on to a, a whole new paranormal level. And there was a bridge above the site, uh, which is called Peabody Lane, Peabody Bridge, something like that. It's called the Ghost Bridge now, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> but 
they saw this uh, figure on the bridge. So one of the lads jumped out of the car. The other one went round to sort of shine his lights on and say, oh, somebody's here trying to trying to rob it. Mm. So as the guy in the car drove his car round to the bridge, as he got to the bridge, he realised that stood in front of him was a ghostly apparition of what he described as something wearing a hooded robe. Oh, right, okay. Uh, his colleague on the ground below, because obviously he's on the bridge, looked up he could see it as well so you've got two people from two different angles seeing Mm. the same thing as he shone his headlights on it the lights went through the figure so they were illuminating this pallet behind it i believe yeah um and it that was it all hell broke loose and these two guys just went let's get the hell out of here um (laughs) ran back to jump back in the car they flew back to the to the porter cabin where they were staying they rang their boss at 4 a.m crying their eyes out and just said you know when the boss turned up he said basically both men looked like they'd had the most terrifying experience of their life wow so uh, is there is there any history of um any religious buildings abbeys monasteries Mm. anything like that in the area now this is the thing yeah this is the thing because i've through doing my show and, and, and other such things, I've ended up getting to know Dr. David Clark, who's a very well-known uh, journalist, author, investigator, primarily in UFOs, but obviously he's covered a lot of, of local history. Yeah. During his research, he's found no evidence of any monasteries or abbeys or anything in the area. Um, the children's spirits were supposedly children that were killed in a mine accident. There's right. no evidence of that either. So these explanations have been put forward. And, and what what tended to happen was that there was a local historian in the early 90s who basically put forward both these theories with no evidence. And so these two theories have been taken on over the last 30 years, Craig, as yeah. the explanations. But there's there's no proof of it at all. No. And the nearest monastery or abbey to Stocksbridge is about 10 miles away in a, in Barnsley, Monk Breton Priory. Okay. And so there's no real history of any sort of... Now, that's not to say it didn't happen, but there's no evidence mm. at all. And if anybody wrote about things, the church were usually the only people in the areas that could write anyway. Yeah. Um, sure. And there doesn't seem to be any sort of documentation that that supports either of these, and especially in the, in, in the mining industry as well. Any accidents were always mm. recorded. Of I mean, course, there was, yeah, yeah. There was a terrible one which happened in Peniston, I think, where you know over a hundred people were killed, men and boys. Mm. And you know, and there's a, a plaque and a memorial for that, and it's a well-known story. But this, there's there's none of it. But that was only the beginning of what began. So, okay, okay. So what? What? <laughs> so you keep you keep doing doing these little pauses, and I'm I'm getting closer and closer to the microphone and, and, and the speakers <laughs> as I'm listening to you. So okay, go on. No, I did, just just going back to what to, to what you were saying mm-hmm. before before you go any further about um uh, about the the uh, the children being involved in a mining disaster. I mean, you're quite right. We've had mining disasters uh, on this side of of the Pennines, um, where the you know the there have been um inquests there have been memorials as 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 you mentioned um the very famous one near to uh, the town of accrington which 
uh, I wrote about in in the first book uh, yeah. that I wrote, and and yet again there is there is there are records of of inquests, um, there are records of the people who died, um, there is uh, a. Uh, monument of sorts uh, where the the pit head was so mm. if these children had been involved um, if they'd have been working down the mine and, and of course depending on what time frame you're looking at you know the further back in time you go the younger the children tended to be especially the boys yeah. working down in the mines um, you would think that there will be some records to um, to corroborate that yeah and definitely definitely so Obviously, this boss that has come to see his two terrifies, Nightwatchman just said, well, you know, it, it's just one of them things, lads, you'll have to deal with it. So the, the guys were so scared, they contacted the police, um, hmm. which is probably what escalates the story from this point on, because they spoke to a police officer called Richard Ellis. Um, and when he told him the story, when they, sorry, when they told him the story, he, he basically laughed it off and said, well, I don't think this is a police matter. Mm. You need to speak to the church. So, oh, okay. so they took him to his word and the two lads shot out of the police station and drove headlong to Stocksbridge Church, forced their way in and refused to leave the church. So an hour later, <laughs> PC Ellis gets a call from his boss saying, you need to get to this down to the church and get these two lads out because the, the vicar's not very happy with you. Yeah. So, so at this point, PC Ellis thinks, well, this is a bit odd. So they said, well, maybe somebody's trying to scare him off to nick everything. This was the the yeah. idea. They thought they'd been stitched up a bit just to get scare yeah. him off. Yeah. Um, so, the following night, PC Ellis and his colleague and, and another officer called John Beat went down to the site at night and decided to do some investigating. Now. When they got there, they came across something flapping on the bridge and they were a bit taken aback and they went to investigate and they found that it was a, a plastic sheet that had blown loose. So they were mm. like, oh, they've just seen that and got themselves scared. Yeah. It's a bit silly. But as they're coming back towards their car, they started hearing knocking noises around them, like bangs from either yeah. side of them, like somebody was like circling them. Right. Like, well, this is a bit odd. And then it stops. So like, oh, it's a waste of bloody time. This it's just, you know, wood. It's the trees mm. blowing because it was quite a windy day, obviously, with this plastic sheet blowing up. Yeah. So both officers get into their car. And they're just about to to set off when they hear this almighty bang on the boot. And they're like, bloody hell. Like somebody throwing a brick at him. So one of them jumps out, has a look. There's no brick. There's no dent on the car. Nothing. Mm. So it's like this is a bit strange. Gets back in the car, bang, another one. But this time it's on the, I think it was on the back back door on the passenger side. Like somebody had just slapped slap, slap the back door. Yeah. Same again. Happens on the driver's side this time. So they're like, what the hell is going on here? So they're thinking, is somebody, you know, checking? There's no bricks, no sticks, nothing. There's nothing that could be causing a noise. There's no debris around the car. They're so convinced that somebody's mucking about. They get out. They look under the car. There's nobody there. So they're like, well, this is just crazy. And when they described it, they said it sounded as if somebody was taking a baseball bat to the car. Right. And literally just smashing the car. Mm. So they're thinking, this is just really strange. We need to just get out of here. Mm. As they're about to start the ignition, 
John's in the passenger side and he looks out the window and a figure just leans straight into the car and he just starts screaming. PC Ellis is like, what the bloody hell? He turns around, looks at John screaming, looks back. This thing has now appeared on his side of the car, done the same thing. He starts screaming and they're both sat there screaming at this thing that has just jumped into the, stuck its head through the, the windows on both sides of the car. It, it takes them a few seconds or a couple of minutes to, to gather themselves. They start the car and they speed out of it. And the legend of the ghost of Stocksbridge Bypass was born. Wow. <laughs> so did did they give any sort of description then of, of what they saw? Well, they described it as a figure wearing medieval clothing. Okay. Um, and But they were so shocked by what had happened the story hit the press a couple of days later it it, it mm. landed in the local newspaper the sheffield star yeah. which leads me to to david clark because david clark was working at the star at the time as a journalist and right. he interviewed them okay. um, and <laughs> when i spoke to him about oh about three years ago i think I, I did a special for halloween 2019 and and david joined me he'd still got the original interview tape he did with them in a in the police station in October 1987, Greg. Right. That was recorded on a ghetto blaster. <laughs> <laughs> Short orange, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. So he basically, they, they told him exactly what had happened. Two police officers that had worked for South Yorkshire Police for a very long time in, in, in a variety of challenging situations, both said that it was the most frightening experience of their life and they were utterly convinced in every aspect of what their experience was. Mm. And as soon as that hit the press, then all of a sudden other stories started to appear and other people had had similar, if not the same, but similar stories. And it just kind of spread from there. And, and a lot of locals um, from the next village to Stocksbridge, which is a, a beautiful, picturesque, old fashioned Yorkshire village called Wortley. Mm. A lot of people had had experiences with that. And some of those are just astounding. Really? Yeah. Can, um, can you elaborate on any of those? Yeah, I think my favourite is a is a guy called Graham. Um, oh, what's his surname? Oh, Graham Graham Brook. Um, so Graham was training for the 1988 London Marathon, uh, and he used to go running round Wortley and Stocksbridge. And his his run that he used to do used to take him past where they were building the bypass. Mm. Uh, and one particular day, his son said, oh, can I come for a run with you, Dan? And he said, yeah, no problem. So they set off on a run. And as they were running up this hill next to the bypass, where the bypass was being built, like a lovely little leafy country lane, mm. they started smelling this really pungent, fusty smell. And as they're running, this figure just appears <laughs> in front of them. So there's two, two witnesses, mm. father and son. Middle of the day, this is like one o'clock in the afternoon, I think it was. And they saw this figure and its knees were in the road mm. and it was just kind of floating there. And as they got closer, they realised they could see the nose, but they couldn't, they couldn't see any other facial features other than eye sockets. Right. And as they watched it, it just disappeared. So its, it's knees were at, at the, the tarmac level. So yes. It, so it was obviously stood at a level that, that was yeah. historically lower. Yeah. So from when they built the road up 
um, was was this sort of medieval garb, medieval dress? That this did, did did they say that at all or not? Well, they said it was it was dark clothes with a hood. Okay, so, so yeah, so back to the monk's cowl again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. Nobody, I think it, it, a lot of people have presumed it's a monk because nobody mm. describes it as a monk. They just seem to say it's wearing dark clothing and a hood. Right. So it's not like people are saying, oh, it's got a cassock on or whatever, or it's got its yeah. hands clasped. It's not, it's not doing anything particularly monk-like, <laughs> shall yeah. we say. Yeah, but yeah. obviously with a description like that, Craig, you, you would, you know, in your mind's eye, you think monk. That's um, that comes to mind, isn't it? Yeah. So once that sighting came out, it, it lots of other people have said, oh, they'd had strange experiences near there. People said their dogs wouldn't go near certain areas of that that road or or near that if they took them out in the fields near there they'd they'd try and keep away from it yeah so this all carried on and a few little other stories came out until the road was finished um (laughs) (laughs) so obviously if you're going to have a road that's already got a reputation as being haunted what's the best date to open it on friday the 13th I'm going to say 31st of october but obviously (laughs) not (laughs) friday the 13th is as good a date as any then i suppose isn't it yeah so yeah, so Friday the thirteenth of May, nineteen eighty-eight, the road officially opens, okay. and that's when you start having witnesses who are driving cars, yeah, having incidents. And there's a one of the one of the scariest ones was a couple called Judy and David Sampson who were driving back from uh, Judy's auntie or something, and they were driving along the road that runs parallel to Stocksbridge Bypass. And as they were driving, they could see this figure sort of running through a field next to them. And they were like, well, that's a bit odd. Once again, mm. middle of the afternoon. Um, and as they're watching, this figure seems to be coming closer and closer and closer to them. And then they realised that it wasn't running. It was floating across the field towards them. And it came up the banking and dove straight in front of the car to the fact that they had to put the brakes on. The car came to a screeching halt. They were both very shook up thankfully both were okay Mm. but once again you've got two witnesses Mm. daytime yeah strange shape now they described it as sort of a gray they said it looked like a gray man running okay uh so there was that one Um, yeah yeah and then you had a, another, a very similar one a couple of years later. But once again, another couple, middle of the day, coming home. And as they were driving, they were on Stocksbridge Bypass and something once again. But they described it as a black shape jumped in front of the car. They were both really, really shaken up to the point that they wouldn't drive on the road again for a long time afterwards because they had, it had caused so many... Uh, frightening responses to them that they basically got a bit of PTSD, I suspect. Yeah. And they just yeah. they just didn't want to do it. So this all happened over a sort of a two to three year period from the construction to to the road. And by this point, its notoriety had, had really begun to develop in the area. Yeah. So I wonder if something had been disturbed then when they were building the road. Well, I suspect, obviously, when, when we talk about paranormal events or, or things of this nature, often... Mm. You know, redevelopment, redecorating, rebuilding can often be the catalyst for something to sort of say, hmm, I'm not very happy about this. (laughs) 
I think um, I think I'd be tempted to be driving up and down the bypass with my da- dash cam on for <laughs> um, for quite a while just to see if I could just to see if I could get anything on uh, on recording. But um, yeah, that it, I mean that that sounds it, it sounds like some really quite frightening experiences there, and obviously it's happening um, a lot. Is it still happening at the moment? Then is it a, a thing still still being seen at the moment? You you still get the odd occurrence. Not too many witnesses have had a real experience. There was one about five years ago. Once again, somebody driving on it in the day saw a black shape float across the road um, about 100 yards in front of them. They didn't have this kind of full-on, mm. oh, my God, I've, I've hit somebody experience that some of the other witnesses had had in the past. Mm. Um, but it, the, the other aspect of all this was that the road became known as the most dangerous road in the uk it isn't it's not even in the most it's not even in the top 50 most Mm. dangerous roads however it did have a i mean it opened in 1988 and i think by 2002 they'd have 24 fatal accidents on it right okay because the road was originally going to be a dual carriageway and then they changed it to a to single lanes two Mm. single lanes and people would drift across drift across lanes and have head-on smashes so people began to say it became the most dangerous road. And it, I think, you know, over 14 years, if you've got 24 deaths on it, but there were more years where there weren't fatalities mm. than years when there were. And it just had this reputation and, and some yeah. awful accidents, I have to say, some yeah, some yeah, yeah. deeply upsetting incidents mm. involving children as well on, on the area. So they ended up putting speed cameras on and it, it it's kind of settled down a bit. I mean, it's, it's a road that has a lot of heavy traffic. It's in open moorland, Craig. It's very mm-hmm. picturesque. It's the kind of road that you've got to really... I mean, it's only seven miles long, but you've mm. got to pay full attention because it's one of those roads where you can kind of get lost in the surroundings. Yeah. And, I like I, yeah, yeah. and obviously, it's a bypass. It's it's very busy. Mm. A lot of people are you know, not paying due care and attention to the surroundings. And I think that's it. There's a lot of things at play it's not a particularly dangerous road, mm. but it's got a lot of things about it that can make it seem a lot worse than it is. So its reputation has been completely cemented. However, over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, they've made a few changes and it's a lot safer than it used to be. Is it susceptible to bad weather or is it? Um... It can be. I mean, it's on the outskirts of, of, of Sheffield. So it's it's kind of on the on the cusp of the, the Pennines, Stocksbridge mm. and, the, and the top of the Peak District. So um, in winter, it it can see some, you know, when you get a heavy snowfall, play, you know, Stocksbridge and places like that, it can, can be sort of snowed under for a couple of days or whatever in, in, in the area. And, uh, you know, you can be driving along there and be stuck in a pea super. It's one of the few areas of Sheffield that still gets really thick fog at times. I've I've driven up there on a couple of occasions over the last... 20 years on nights where I've been extremely nervous, not yeah. not necessarily because I'm expecting to see a ghost, but because the weather's also yeah, not, just just the driving not, conditions. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's you know, we're not talking as bad as somewhere like Snakes Pass or something, but mm. yeah, it, it it can catch you unawares, especially if you're not from the area as well. Yeah, yeah, or somewhere like say Saddleworth Moor or somewhere like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, sounds a sounds a really. <laughs> I say sounds a really interesting place. It sounds actually quite a quite a frightening place. Um, so yeah, that's that's def, that's definitely one to uh, to look out for if I'm ever 
if I'm ever over near Sheffield, I will I will actively hunt out Stocksbridge Bypass. Um, what other um, local stories then can you tell us? I mean, you you, you sent me a list, yeah. So I, I could perhaps mention a couple on the list, and and maybe we could go through it that way. Uh, Marples Hotel. Yeah, well, I was going to dive into the Marples next because it's one of my favourites. Okay, there you go then. <laughs> uh, so the Marples Hotel, or was in the city centre and obviously as as many people may know Sheffield was one of the cities in the UK that suffered a severe bombardment in the second world war and essentially we we, we had a blitz here yeah. over over two nights in in December 1940 um the marples was a very popular watering hole it was a six story hotel very popular lot of bands on used to do dances and things so it was a it was a well-known location and on december the 12th 1940 the air raid sirens went off whilst there was a, a tea dance in situ at the marples hotel and so everybody in the hotel there was at least 75 people in there some people think there was probably more but i'll explain that in a moment were in there and so they all decided that safest way, get in the cellar, get safe. Mm. It took a direct hit from a 500-pound bomb oh that came straight in through the roof and went through every single floor and brought the entire building crashing down on them in the cellar. The day after, when the rescue operation finally reached the cellar, they pulled out the seven remaining survivors who had only survived by pure chance that they had decided because the cellar was so full they were pushed into the bottle cellar which was made of um it had a different build and a different ceiling yeah. and that was the only part of the cellar where the roof didn't come in and so everybody in that particular area survived and everybody else that was in the rest of the cellar was killed um sounds horrific yeah now, the worst thing about this is that obviously they know there was at least 75 people there. I'm going to say, yeah. Some people think there's more because they couldn't identify some of the bodies. Mm. There were bits of some bodies mm. that didn't, you know, match up. Yeah, they had too many hands and too many feet, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. And so when they, when they got them all out, I think there were 72 bodies identified. Okay, but there were some of the witnesses were saying that there were some people that that they couldn't recognise, and there was other people that were missing that had never been identified where they'd gone, um, including a couple of off-duty servicemen. So they they were obviously classed as missing in action. So that's why they think there was more than what people think in there. Mm. Just unfortunately, due to the circumstances, couldn't identify everything. So obviously, the building was knocked down. And as part of the redevelopment, the you know the whole cellar and and what like was was filled in and stuff, and so it was rebuilt as a as a bar, which became the Marples Bar in the late 1950s, and from that point on, people started to say that they could smell strange aromas. Um, a lot of people said either one of two aromas were often the most prevalent, which was either the smell of cooking meat. Mm. or the sickly, perfumey smell. Mm. 
both of which sadly were nothing to do with meat or perfume mm. as as many people pointed out the, the, the cooking of meat smells unfortunately probably people burning yeah yeah and the the perfumey smell was the alcohol that was actually burning due to the temperatures because apparently it reached like an inferno as as well in there yeah um so people started reporting this now this went on for a considerable amount of time as the most common aspects of the haunting in there that people would get this even to the point that there are flats now but that it's no longer a bar mm. but there are flats above it. people will always complain apparently about people cooking but the building is one of those really odd student blocks of flats now where mm. you can't open the windows for some ungodly reason right yeah. um so aromas can't get in and yet people still report that they smell these aromas so you had all that but there's been a few people that have complained about hearing people crying people screaming when it was a bar glasses used to fly off the bar mm. or, or there was one witness who claimed to hear sort of big band music being played at one point okay walked out the room walked back in the sound had completely gone so it was one of those it was mm. it was quite a low-key haunting but it was yeah. such a well-known one and, it, and people it would happen to customers it would happen to staff it would happen to residents so it was it was one that went on for a very long time nothing much seems to be reported these days sadly however once again you've got student accommodation upstairs and i think it's a it's a pawn shop downstairs right so it's it's not really uh, got a lot of people coming and going, whereas when it was a bar, obviously it was quite frequently mm. visited. Yeah, the aromas thing is um, it's not very common, is it, with uh, um, with hauntings? I mean, people do um, report being able to smell strange things um, when there's paranormal activity going on, but it tends to be either audible or visual doesn't it with um yes with, with hauntings and although i've had some experience myself of strange smells um i would imagine that those smells that you just described then are actually quite stomach churning really mm. Mm. especially when you realize what they actually yeah, are when you realize what it is yeah i mean that that is that is pretty pretty unpleasant really isn't it it is it is and it's it's one of those aspects that it it's only something i've become to to know a lot more of over the last sort of two to three years since mm. i've moved craig i've moved recently right. and and my partner was really intrigued at the local area that we've moved to because all the houses don't match mm. and i said oh well that's probably because of the war so we did some investigating we discovered that our house was built in 1950 because the house next door was blown to smithereens on december the 12th 1940 right so even where i live next door mm was obliterated and unfortunately once again seven people were in that house they were all killed um and it just shows you something i think they ended up being 680 people killed in sheffield over two nights mm. yeah well of course it, it was a target wasn't it because of the the steel production yes yeah but the unfortunately the first blitz hit the residential areas they came back the day after for the steel area right yeah. so some so th there are two trains of thought either it was malicious or they got their directions wrong the first night nobody's really sure yeah yeah um i think sometimes they tend to to get their uh the directions a little bit messed up and of course a lot of the time in, or, in order for them to be able to get back and and of course we did the same when we went over to bomb yeah uh, oh um, yes tar targets over over in in germany and 
mm-hmm. places like that. Um, if they missed the target, they would just drop the bombs because it was the only way that they would be able to shed the weight in order to be able to get back again. They wouldn't have enough fuel on board to carry all the bombs back again. So, yeah. uh, I mean, for instance, there was a there was a bomb dropped on the village where I live. Mm. Uh, um, just one single bomb. Mm. So, the, you know, the train of thought is that it, it wasn't a, um, a target. It was just the fact that they just dropped the bomb probably just, just to give themselves a little bit more um, or a little bit less weight, shall we say, to, to yeah. be able to, to get back to where they were going to. So, well, no, that's that's quite horrific, isn't it? Um, what about, uh, there's another one. I'm, I'm always interested in, in pubs and, and, <laughs> that's, and that's that sort of thing. I love nothing better than a haunted pub. Um, the old Queen's Head. Yes, well, the Queen's Head is, is one I've got to know a lot more um, over the last, several years because i actually work around the corner from there so it's my work pub okay now, right but it's, <laughs> it's always been one of those isn't it <laughs> oh, yeah especially one that serves a really nice pint of beer so um the queen's head is <clears throat> excuse me what's my words there the queen's head is a beautiful old mock tudor building dating back to the 1400s it's one of the oldest buildings still left standing in sheffield it's a beautiful building. It looks like it's falling down, to be fair. <laughs> but it's I can assure you it's its safe and sturdy. And it's always had a reputation as, as being a haunted pub for quite a long time. Um, and it's got two or three really interesting stories. I think the, the nicest one, shall we say, is that the pub used to be one of those where you'd have like three rooms, Craig. You'd have best room, tap room, snug in yeah. the old days. Those wonderful little rooms <laughs> where you could just disappear and eat, have a pint and eat your bag of crisps or whatever out of the way. Uh, and when they remodelled the bar once again, talking about redecoration or remodelling or rebuilding something, that seemed to trigger one of their old regulars, which was apparently an old guy called Alan, who used to love to sit in the snug with his half a beer and his newspaper. And he'd sit there all afternoon and he'd just have his beer, talk to a few people and then he'd go on. And when they removed the snug and made it all an open plan bar, Alan seemed to come back for some reason. So it got so regular that when the cleaners would come in on the morning, they would always say, good morning, morning, Alan, (laughs) just to let sure he was there. But several people had seen him and he'd be sat where his table used to be in the corner of the snug. He'd be sat there smiling with his half a beer on the table and then he'd just fade away. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so he was he, he was uh he was quite a quite quite a well-known regular then yeah very much so yeah i mean one of the people that saw him recognized him and that's why they knew it was he was alan so they yeah. it, this apparition was that clear they were able to recognize the person's face so they knew who it was is he um, still around now is he still apparently he kind of stopped People stopped seeing him from about the 1990s onwards. There hasn't been a sighting of him since the 1990s, but it's one of those that it seems that where one thing stops, another one starts, and they've got some really odd ones in here. They've also got another one of my favourite weird aspects of, of haunted, haunting buildings, especially pubs, mm. is a haunted toilet, Craig. Okay. <laughs> uh, and in the, in the Queen's Head, it's the ladies, um, and this one seems to be a bit rude. It's got bad manners because... Many female customers will complain that they're in the toilets on their own and somebody will try to come into the cubicle or unlock the door and start banging the door. 
Okay. Several witnesses, because uh, it's one of those pubs as well. When you come in, it's, you can hear the door, or sometimes if you walk in at the wrong angle, you set the hand dryer off. So yeah. you can't you can't get in unless you're some kind of ninja, really, without making a noise. So anybody's in the toilet on their own, you can clearly hear somebody coming in and going out. And now I've I've done a ghost hunt in this pub, and I've tried these doors, and they they squeak like nobody's business. So when somebody tells you that they definitely heard nobody coming in coming in or going out again you have to believe them because there's no way you can open or close these doors without it making some kind of noise. Um, so it will often do that, but it also likes to unravel the toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> as well. So often people have been in cubicles and then heard somebody go into the next cubicle, once again, not hearing the doors, thinking this is a bit odd. And then they hear the toilet roll rattling around as it's being unrolled. And then they come out and see all the toilet paper on the floor. Wow. <laughs> sounds, sounds like the Andrex puppy, that one. <laughs> it might well be. <laughs> uh, are, are people ever um, physically um, attacked by this? Not spirit? by that particular one. There was a member of staff who had a terrifying encounter in the cellar one particular day where they'd had a cabinet upstairs in the pub. Mm. And it had been moved to the cellar because it was too big and she couldn't work around it in the bedroom. The bedroom wasn't the biggest. So that they managed to get it in the cellar out of the way. And allegedly she went in the cellar one day, change a couple of barrels. And as she got to the barrels to start changing them, she could hear this scraping noise. And as she turned around, the cabinet had begun to walk towards her. Oh, blimey. To try and cut her off from getting back up the stairs. And she ran upstairs hysterical yeah. It's going, oh, yeah, whatever, love. You, you're exaggerating, you're being a bit silly. So two two lads went running downstairs, and the cabinet was now in the middle of the cellar floor. Both were struck by this because they were two of the people that had helped move it down there. Yeah, and they knew how heavy and bulky it was. Yeah, absolutely. And she said it was walking towards her, onto leg to leg, physically moving, and it was like a big six-foot wooden cabinet. Oof. That's actually giving me chills. That, to be honest, that's that's really uh, yeah. That's really that's really scary, isn't it? That <laughs> yeah, it is. Especially when it's an inanimate object like that, you would expect. You know, we've heard many many a story about a haunted doll or or mm. other strange things coming to life, but never a cabinet chasing yeah. you across there. Yeah, that would that would uh, make me. I'd be up them stairs quicker than you know. They, they'd have to drink dry. I'm afraid, unfortunately. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, that's, that's that's quite uh, that's quite unpleasant that isn't it yeah it's got um i mean this is the thing about the queen's head it's got sort of for every bad ghost experience there's always another one whereas i know in the 70s the landlady who ran the pub used to complain that her clothes used to disappear and then they'd come back a couple of days later and they'd been washed <laughs> and oh, she no. was she was she was completely nonplussed because it, it didn't smell of her washing powder right and she never understood where they they just disappear and then they come back. They'd always be washed, and they'd be on her ironing pile. Pity they didn't, they didn't do the ironing for her as well, really. Well, they? exactly. You know, half a job. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that's that's um, again. I've never heard anything like that before. Yeah, there was also another weird incident when they had another landlady. I think this was in the nineties, and they used to have a, a a beautiful dog, a Doberman, um, who used to who they used to keep upstairs. Um, and one particular night, they went upstairs into their front room 
to discover that their dog was now on the balcony and the French doors behind the dog had been locked. Oh, blimey. And they had, and when they got the dog back in, it just wouldn't stay in the room at all. And it would oh. never, never stay in that room again after that. But they never understood because clearly the dog couldn't unlock the door, put itself on the balcony because you could only lock the door from the inside. Yeah. Oh, dear. So it's uh, so it's a strange thing, and it's one of those that it it has sort of peaks and troughs that nothing will happen for a couple of years, and then they'll have three or four things happen over a couple of months. I know last time I went in, they were having issues with pint pots moving about in mm. the pub because they used to have a, a situation where they kept finding a pint of beer every day. Now, I'm not too sure about this story. This is one of them stories that doesn't make much sense to me, Craig. Mm. But apparently... One particular landlord used to complain that he'd get up every morning and there'd be a full pint of beer on, on a table and he'd be going mad about why, why is there a pint here and just left, why have we not cleaned it? Yeah. And apparently this went on for weeks, allegedly. And so one particular day, he decided that th- this is where the story seems to lose its common sense because I'm thinking, well, if he's getting up in the morning and seeing it, why is he, why, why is it? Anyway, it'll become clear what I mean. So apparently one particular day, he decided to leave this pint for whatever reason or left a pint out for what was going on. And then when he came back, the the pint glass was empty and the dregs were still running down the glass as if whatever had wanted a drink had finally had it and gone. Right, okay. But I was thinking, well, if it's there every morning, why has that not happened before? Mm-hmm. It just didn't. It, it's one of them where when you start looking at it, yeah, it's a great story, but it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> Unless it wanted somebody to, it was trying to tell somebody that it, it wanted somebody else to pour the drink for it. Maybe, maybe. I mean, there's there's somebody I've seen a version of the story where they said they realised it was it was a paranormal pint because it it didn't taste of any beer they sold. And I was like, well, well, I, well, there again. Well, where's this pint coming from then? So it's all a bit, yeah. That one. Yeah. I'm not too sure myself. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, let's move away uh, from uh, the paranormal and let's have a let's have a chat about UFOs um, oh. and and UAPs. Um, I believe that you've had an experience yourself with a UFO. Well, I've always said this, Craig. I can't tell you what I saw, but I know what I didn't see. So. Okay. It was a lovely late summer's evening, September 2010. Uh, we'd had friends around, we'd had a lovely evening, and I was in my office upstairs, window open, uh, in the in the bad old days when I, uh, I liked a, a cigarette before bed, so uh, before I kicked the habit. So I was up there, radio on, just surfing the internet, catching up with a few things. And I just sort of, something sort of caught my vision out the corner of my eye. And I looked and I thought, oh, that's a bit strange. And I suddenly realised I could see this ball of fire just slowly moving through the sky. And I thought, that's, what on earth is that? And I'm thinking, is it, is it a Chinese lantern? Well, no, because it's it was it was pretty big from where I was. It wasn't a plane? Something? Is it a plane on fire? Is it? You know? Is it? Is it a dis- something in distress? It wasn't that? 
because I was able to watch it for a long time as well. I'm, you know, I'm talking 40 minutes. Wow. Um, so I'm thinking, right, well, maybe it's a reflection. So I turn the lights off. No, still there. Open the window, shut the window, making sure because it was near, near a busy road. So it could have been a light bouncing off the window, could have been anything. So I was making sure I was covering all aspects of it, that it wasn't a reflection, even though it's clearly not a reflection. Because, you know, when you close the window, it didn't move. It was still in the same position. Yeah. And I watched this ball of fire, like I say, for probably the best part, 40, 45 minutes, just slowly drift along. Didn't go fast. Never changed height. It kept a constant height. And as I'm watching it, 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 it was clearly a ball of fire wasn't a chinese lantern Mm. at all because i've seen hundreds of chinese lanterns living where i live in sheffield craig somebody's letting one off every saturday (laughs) night by the looks of it these days so you see them a lot and they're quite easy to spot because you've got the bright flame at the bottom and then it lit so it looks like a floating candle yeah um and it wasn't that at all and it didn't dip and it was just such a constant speed it didn't speed up didn't slow down it was just nicely drifting along so i was so perplexed by this i contacted the british astronomical society and i i said i think i've seen a a comet or a meteor told them all about it exactly what had happened time speed what it looked like whatever and they just said yeah you haven't seen a comet or a meteor because it was going too slow Mm, yeah what that was i could not tell you i didn't see a craft i didn't see a shape i didn't hear a noise from it it was just a ball of fire drifting through the sky do you know whether there was any other reports of it being seen not that i've been able to come across and when i tell people about this they think that they say exactly what i've just said oh well it was probably a, a chinese lantern or a or something else and you're just like well it isn't it wasn't no. i know i know exactly this is what I've always said. I, I can't tell you what it was, but I can tell you what it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, and it's down a main road as well, you know. Somebody must, somebody else must have seen it. I mean, maybe lots of people saw it, Craig, and they just dismissed it as a Chinese lantern, perhaps, or something else. Very, very possibly. Um, I, I think sometimes, you know, that these sort of things, I, sometimes there's, there's very few people see them. Um, I think I think they're, they're only visible to, again, to people who are particularly susceptible to uh, seeing these sort of things um, or, you know, experiencing paranormal or or unexplained phenomena. I think sometimes these aerial phenomena sort of fall into that category that perhaps you were the only one that saw it. Mm. Mm. Maybe. I mean, like I say, it was half past one, September evening, so it was dark. Mm. And like I say, if I'd have not looked at that particular moment or if I'd not been in the room at that particular time, I probably would never have seen it at all. Um, I mean, I had the the, the, the the sense of mind to 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 film it and the video footage was so bad. I just thought mm. I can't show anybody this because I just think you've gone nuts because yeah. it basically just like, looked like a, it didn't look anything like it did to my eyes on, on my old Nokia yeah. uh, that I had. I think it was a Nokia um, at that particular point. <laughs> Um, it just looked like a ball floating through the sky. It didn't look anything like I could see. It was very disappointing when I saw it. And so I just thought, oh, nobody's going to, everybody's going to think it's rubbish, this, or I'm just taking the Michael. So so I just got rid of it, I think. I don't even have the footage anymore because it was anyway, 12 years ago. And it's yeah. it still perplexes me. It pops up on my Facebook memories occasionally mm. every year. And, we'll, <laughs> and I'll always go, yeah, I'm still scratching my head about that one. 
So you you definitely know what it wasn't, but you've got no idea what it was. Precisely. Absolutely yeah. precisely. But yeah. it's, probably it's, a good probably a good way to describe ninety nine percent of what people see in the sky, I think, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because like I say, I'm 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 of the opinion, well, maybe it was some weird meteorological thing that we, we're not aware of that occasionally happens in the sky, Craig. And, and like you say, because people aren't looking up at the right times, we don't see it. It might happen quite regularly. But yeah. I'm one of those people now um, that wherever I go, I'll always keep my eye open. Obviously, I've been out to Bempton and spent some time with Paul Sinclair. Mm. So so if if I've learned anything about what to look for in the skies, it's through listening to Paul and going out there and doing some spotting with him, thanks to yeah. his invitation. Yeah, um, he's, uh, he's certainly the... Uh... He's certainly the godfather, isn't he, in that respect? <laughs> it is, it is. But it, it, it's one of those things that the more I've got to know about doing this show and meeting people and learning things, there was a similar incident that happened in the 90s in Sheffield, which became known as the Howden Moor incident. Okay. Um, now, this happened in the spring of 1997, where over 70 people claimed to have seen what they believed to be a plane on fire flying through the sky. Okay. It was reported from the south, from the north of Sheffield, all the way out to the edge of the Peak District, to the point that people believed that it had come down on a place called Howden Moor. Mm. Um, now that area's got a bit of a weird reputation, anyway, for the amount of plane crashes around there because there was a lot of planes crashed in the war. Okay. Often people would. There was one famous incident where somebody was stood on a runway watching a bomber take off and saw them fly headlong straight into the moor for no reason at all. Right. Uh, uh, and they thought that was weird, and then it happened six months later. So it's it, that area has always had a bit of high strangeness about it. I'm not trying to say it's anywhere like the you know the Bermuda Triangle or the Bennington Triangle or anything like that. Mm. <laughs> but well, there was there was a plane that came down there in 1990, I think it was. Okay. Um, and they knew it had come down. The guy that crashed wasn't even supposed to be there. He was supposed to be flying to Blackpool. So right. he, he was miles off course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, his plane went down. They never recovered his body because he landed in the in the PT areas. They just couldn't get him out. It's like a quagmire up there. Yeah. You know, if you go up there, you, you're in real danger of losing your life if you if you take the wrong path or you don't know where you're going. Yeah. It's a bit like, a bit like Hand of the Baskervilles territory up there. So yeah. he, you know, his plane and his body are still up there from 30 odd years ago and they still couldn't get to him. So this whole area has always had a weird reputation amongst the locals out there that strange things happen on that moor for whatever reason. And people have seen spook lights and all sorts. But people were convinced that this flaming thing that they were all seeing had crashed there. Police came out. The MOD came out. There were sonic booms heard. It it all got into a bit of a mess. You had mm. UFO hunters turning up from all over the country, harassing the locals, Craig. Yeah, I can imagine. Wanted to, wanted to know if anybody's seen dead aliens or the UFO that crashed and all this. <laughs> and it was one of those that ended up that the MOD, after denying they had anything to do with it, it then came out that actually one of their jets was in the area, but nobody reported seeing a jet. They all saw something on fire flying yeah. through the sky and it was seen for like 20 miles 70 different people from different parts of sheffield and the surrounding villages and towns also this thing that were just basically poo-pooed and they were all told once again they'd miss mistaken seeing hal hal bop because that's 
because a lot of people were actually out because it was a lovely clear night and you could see Halbop at that point. Mm. So a lot of people were stargazing around here, especially out in the Peak District because obviously it's beautifully dark and yeah. very little light pollution out there. So a lot of people star watch around here as well, especially in summer and, uh, and, and into autumn as well. Mm. Because the views are so good and you can see for miles, you can see all sorts. It's beautiful. Yeah. So a lot of people were out and a lot of them said, yeah, I appreciate you might say it could have been Hal Bob, but we saw Hal Bob and this wasn't that. It was something completely different in a different part of the sky. Mm. Interesting. And it's interesting that the MOD were involved because they don't they don't tend to get involved, do they, at, um, with most uh sightings no absolutely not or if they or do if, they tend if, to keep it very quiet it's just about to say when they do they keep it very quiet and you you're into sort of the uh the infamous men in black scenario aren't you which um i know a few incidents around here that have um had some some strange characters uh, investigating mm. shall we say so yeah, because yeah, we don't we don't usually get a lot of UFO sightings this side. There's loads over the Peak District, obviously as we were talking about. Mm. The last time, I mean, I mean, there's been straight people claiming to see World War Two planes and bombers and stuff flying all around here, and I'm not sure if you get that your side of the Pennines. They tend to be sort of more towards the south of the Peak District, but there's been a couple of occasions in Sheffield where people have claimed to have seen Dakotas and Lancasters flying over the south of Sheffield going out towards the Peak District, which obviously makes no sense at all. No, unless the, um, well, recordings, time slips. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, the the uh, the, the thing that came to mind when you were talking about those um, balls of fire in the sky was a very similar report over this way uh, a couple of years ago, which... Um, some investigators believe was was a portal because they, saw, they actually saw um, or, or witnesses said that they saw craft coming out of it. Wow. Where was that so reported? That was at uh, a place called Corn, which is the other, oh, side yeah, of, yeah. the other side of Pendle Hill from from where I live, the Corn, the Corn portal. Ah. Um, a gentleman who I um, uh, interviewed uh, right back when I first started the, the podcast, uh, Lee Nicholson, um, if you look for Lee Nicholson's blog online, he, he actually interviewed this uh, this guy and his wife, uh, both um, both pensioners, both in the seventies, I think. Uh, and he he'd drawn some, you know, fairly crude pictures of what he'd seen. Yeah. Um, but it was described very similar to to those two incidents that you've just mentioned. Um, and in this particular case, the witnesses said that they saw craft of some description emerging from what they described as a sort of ball of light, almost mm. like a tear or a rip um, in the sky. So I wonder whether there were similar sort of phenomena. Mm. Yeah, very much. I've always been really interested because one of those sightings we had over here, the best one people, some of the, some skeptics said, oh, well, he probably didn't realise what he was looking at. And the guy that one of the people that had actually seen it was a, it was a bomber commander and he'd flown 43 sorties and he was like if anybody knows where a lancaster bomber looks like it's going to be me you know mm. so <laughs> and that was in chesterfield so i mean that was about whoa about 10 years ago so that they, they once again they're reported quite regularly mm. 
every two or three years, somebody will say they see something strange. And obviously we see, you know, it's quite obvious to see planes and where I live. Mm. There's there's some somebody who flies over our area every Saturday and Sunday in his little plane. So you, you can tell what they are. So if you see something yeah. strange yeah. in the sky, you're going to know what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have light aircraft. We, have, we also have a lot of helicopters as well. Um, we also get quite a lot of uh, military aircraft mm. um, coming over here. Um, and in fact, it seems to have increased in... Uh, in frequency quite notably over the last two or three months um an awful lot of supersonic jet fighters mm. to be flying around and um flying up over the the ball and fells and heading up towards uh well sort of uh, north yorkshire where really pennygent and and yeah. all there they seem to be flying up up the valley at uh at fairly fairly brisk pace so uh, there's definitely something going on that um that, that we don't know about but you're quite right in what you say if it's a military aircraft or a helicopter or something like that you know what they look like and and you know when you see something that you don't immediately look at and think oh that's a jet fighter or you know mm. that's a, that's a helicopter then immediately you start to think well actually what is it because it's not something that i would recognize yeah very much i mean i've when i went to school we were in a, on a flight path so we used to see fighter jets once every couple of weeks craig and i was fortunate enough about 20 years ago to be at Loch Ness and saw a couple of flight fighter jets flying down Loch Ness one afternoon so you know I, I know what a fighter jet looks like yeah <laughs> and yeah. my uncle was in the Royal Navy so um, <laughs> so I've got a, a bit more experience with that and and like you say about helicopters where we live we've got the the mountain rescue air base here so we get a lot of flights especially over where I live going out to the peak district to to assist people who've got into difficulties out there so it it once again you you i know what i didn't see yeah yeah <laughs> i think i think that's definitely been the theme of this uh this, this chat we've had isn't it really I, I i know what it wasn't but i don't know what it was um it's been absolutely great talking to you again paul thank you for for some uh for some really quite unique stories there you so, sometimes you I tend to find that some ghost stories, for instance, can be a little bit formulaic. Um, yeah. I'm not saying they're not true, but you tend mm. to get the same sort of things happening um, in different locations. The ones that, that you've obviously told us on on, on this chat we've had have, have been unique, shall we say, to put it mildly. Um, and I think it's great. There's the stuff that, that, that you've told us there that that I've never heard before. So so it's been absolutely uh uh, absolutely gripping and and i really have been on the edge of my seat a couple of times so <laughs> so it's been great to talk to you where can people get in touch with you or, or or listen to your work paul absolutely so you can find mysteries and monsters across all social media platforms just look for mysteries and monsters we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram we're on linkedin mysteries and monsters is on all podcasting platforms iTunes, Spotify, wherever, wherever good and bad podcasts are found, Craig, you will find Mysteries and Monsters lurking in there. And I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter as Paul Bestall, and I'm also on Instagram, occasionally posting weird pictures of strange graffiti I uncover on my wanderings of Sheffield, and also some. I've started doing some uh, local ghost stories as well from Sheffield as well on on the Mysteries and Monsters Instagram page as well. So they're the easiest places to find me. Good stuff. It's been great to talk to you, Paul. Thank you very much for coming on. My absolute pleasure and all the very best to you and yours. Take care. And you. Thank you. You can visit my website at www.craigbryant.co.uk. Paranormal Pendle will return. And remember, 
to keep watching the shadows.